Amen. If you have your Bibles or bulletins or Bible apps or whatever the case may be, would you take them and turn to Luke chapter 1? We're going to be reading today Luke 1, uh, 26 through 38. It's printed in the bulletin there on page 9, and you're welcome to use that to follow along as we read this very, dare I say, well-known story about the angel announcing the, uh, the coming birth of Jesus uh, to Mary. We know this story, uh, and yet let's read it again and, and uh, give our hearts over to listening, to listening to the Word of God. This is His holy and inerrant Word, so let me ask if you're able, would you join me in standing as we read God's Word together? Uh, this is Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, we're thankful for your word, which you have given to us to teach us, to direct us, to guide us in the path of life. And, and Lord, we pray now that your spirit might open your word to us. Lord, make it come alive that we might see Christ high and lifted up. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So this is a very familiar story to many of us. This is the first story that is specifically about Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and it's the story that just begins. It's the story of how he enters the world. It's that very first note of how he comes. So this week I was thinking about entrances. And this is how Jesus makes his entrance onto the stage of history. And it shows us something so unique about the way that he came. That he was born to a virgin. As we'll find out, he was born in a barn, in a stable, and laid in a manger. A very unique entrance into the world. And yet it was that entrance which set the stage for his ministry. And it's his ministry which sets the stage for the Christian life. So even though this is just the very, very beginning, the announcement of his birth, what we find is that the character of this announcement, 
sets the stage for the rest of the gospel. Right? This is still part of Luke's introduction. Right? He's getting us into the story and he's setting the stage. And, and it's such a, what do we see? It's a, such a humble entrance. Right? The king of kings coming to earth and yet he's born in a barn. And, and so this week as I was thinking about entrances, uh, I then noticed that a friend on, on Facebook had shared this video that was a compilation video of, of, it was called the 20 Best College Football Entrances. And you know when, if you've been to a college football game, the team doesn't just like walk out of the locker room and start the game. There's this big dramatic entrance. Right? And of course the best one is naturally South Carolina's. Right? You know, crowd is cheering, they're getting everybody pumped up, and they start playing the theme from 2001, A Space Odyssey. And it's just this slow, building, dramatic, musical piece. And it's getting everybody more and more excited. And the drama is all building. And then right as it hits that top note, the team comes running out onto the field. Right? And everyone goes crazy. And you know, isn't that what we think when we think, okay, Jesus is coming down from heaven. Here is the King of Kings coming to make his reign known on earth. And we expect some grand dramatic entrance. Right, to, to ride onto the field on a white horse, guns blazing, you know, lances down, ready to make a statement. And yet we read Luke, and that's the farthest thing possible from what we get. There is glory in his coming, but there is so much humility. His coming, actually, it's, it's so ordinary. Born in a stable, you'd think that would be the poorest of the poor sitting in a manger, and, and we get these flashes of glory. I mean, yes, the, 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 the kings, the wise men, they come from thousands of miles away bearing these expensive gifts fit for a king that they deliver in a stable. And yes, the angels do come and they're singing in the heavens at night, but it's in fields where there's just a few ragtag shepherds on the graveyard shift. And so there's, all, there's this glory, yes, but it's also so ordinary. There's this humility. There's this simplicity to the coming of Jesus. In some ways, it doesn't seem to match. And yet, that's the point. Because the way that Jesus comes sets the tone for his ministry. And his ministry sets the tone for the Christian life. And so even in our Christian life today, we look back at this very announcement and we see this is part of God's plan. This is the way that God works. Right, this is no accident that it was done this way. And, and Luke tells this story in chapter 1 because he's trying to set our expectations. He's trying to teach us not just how the birth of Jesus came about, but what the Christian life is going to look like. There's, there's glory and there's humility. In fact, there's more glory than we expect. There's also way more humility than we expect. And we see it, I want to say, in three ways. In the announcement in Jesus himself, and in the Christian life. There's glory and there's humility. And we, so we see it right up front in this announcement by angel Gabriel. And we can't help, of course, if you uh, remember last week we were reading this announcement when Gabriel came and announced to Zechariah right, the coming birth of John the Baptist. So we can't help but read this announcement and compare it to the last announcement. There's so many similarities. You know, Gabriel is on duty in both of these announcements. Uh, he's making you know, this 
unlikely announcement of an expected pregnancy that's going to result in an important child. And there's some similarities, you know, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were barren, and so it was unexpected. Mary is a virgin, so it's even more unexpected. Uh, John is going to be great and turn the hearts of the people to the Lord. Jesus will be even greater, and he'll be called Son of the Most High. His kingdom will have no end. There's, there's similarities, but there's also some very interesting differences. This announcement is more ordinary, and it's more glorious. It's more humble and more glorious. First, we see it's, it's more ordinary than the announcement to Zechariah. Right? If, we, if you remember, the announcement that Gabriel makes to Zechariah, think of where it took place. In the holy place, in the temple, in Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel, at the time when all the people were gathered outside for the hour of prayer, right? while he's uh, offering the incense and burning the incense in the altar, there's all this expectation. People are waiting. They're wondering, why is it taking him so long to come out of the temple? Uh, you know, if you are the heavenly campaign manager planning your announcement, like that's the way to go, right? Maximum impact. Reach the most people in the shortest amount of time right there in Jerusalem. Now, where does Gabriel come to give the announcement to Mary? In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. I think he actually locates it in Galilee because nobody knew where Nazareth was. It's just a small town, right? sort of northernish Israel. Very small, unknown. He has to tell us kind of, you know, what state is it in, right? So we kind of understand. And that's all we're told. That's all we're told. There's no crowd of people that are waiting and wondering what's taking Mary so long to come out, that she's going to come out with this grand news of what she has been told. Presumably, she was at home. It doesn't tell us exactly where, but here she is, a, a young, engaged woman living in a small, rural town. There's no markers of importance. There's no markers of, of grandiosity here. This is very humble. And it's even more humble, we might say, and... And bear with me here because this is risky. We might even say it's more ordinary because this announcement was made to a woman and not to a man. Now, we wouldn't say that today if we were describing this, would we? But can we at least admit that in the first century, to Luke's original readers, they would have thought that? Right? That would have stood out. Here, one announcement was made to Zechariah, the high, the, well, not the high priest, but a priest who was at work. Right? If an, an angel announces a pregnancy to a man at work, we understand there must be some significance there beyond just an ordinary child. If an angel announces a pregnancy to a, a young woman at home, that's very ordinary. That's where we expect talk of pregnancy. That's where we expect talk of babies to be in the home. So at least we can imagine that to Luke's first readers, that would have stood out as a difference. And we would have thought, okay, I guess the first one is more important. It's far more ordinary the way the angel comes and announces it to Mary, but we also recognize it's actually also more, more glorious. There's hints in this announcement itself of the glory of the one who is coming, even beginning with the greeting that the angel uses. Verse 28, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
think of what that means. Gabriel, the angel who stands in the very presence of God, comes to you and says, Greetings, O favored one. He says, You are the one who's favored by God. You are one who has received God's special grace. He says, The Lord is with you. It's a, it's a phrase that emphasizes that Mary in this, in this passage is a very special recipient of God's grace. Right? And not merely his, his saving grace as we commonly talk about, but it's, it's God's special grace that he's giving to her this favor of carrying out a unique task. And he's saying that God has chosen her for this role, not because of anything that she has done, not because she's earned it, right? God didn't look down and choose the most special person, but it's an act of his grace that God is calling on Mary by grace for this special task. We see that the birth of the baby would be more glorious. Yes, it was a miracle that John was born to a barren couple that was advanced in years. It's even more glorious that Jesus was born of a virgin. So even in the, the, the announcement itself, we see both, thing, <clears throat> both things. It's very ordinary. But there's the glory there as well. Now that contrast is a contrast that's much deeper than just the manner and the location of the angel's announcement. We see that contrast in the two children who are coming, right? These two men, John the Baptist and Jesus as well. And we see Jesus himself carries this on, right? Jesus is more glorious, but he's also more humble. His ministry is more ordinary, if we could put it that way. Um, And this is, of course, not not to belittle John, or his ministry, John the Baptist, was very important. It says in the announcement we looked at last week that he would be great before the Lord. He would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He would turn many people to the Lord their God and was making ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's a a vital, that's a precious calling that the Lord gave to John, but it was also a preparatory calling. He was making ready for a greater ministry. And so when the angel comes and announces Jesus' ministry, it is greater, right? He says, Jesus is going to be great. He will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What we see is that the ministry of Jesus is far more glorious than the ministry of John. I think there's a couple things in that description that stand out to me first. Jesus will be king. Jesus is coming to be king. Now, just jump back in your own life experience a long ways and and imagine you're reading a gospel or the story of Jesus for the first time. Right? You don't know how this is all going to play out. And the first thing you read about this main character of the story you're reading is that he is going to reign as king forever and ever. He's going to have the throne of his father David. Maybe you have some hint, uh, some knowledge that that David was the greatest king to that point in in this line. And now you're told this coming one, this main character, is going to be king. You see that his birth is heralded by angelic announcements. He's so important that even the birth of his forerunner was heralded by an angelic announcement. Right? It's all building up our knowledge of who this character is. He's going to be a great king, and it says his throne will never end. Now, what happens when you get into chapter 2, and you realize that his parents are so poor they can't even afford a room in the inn? 
or a decent place to have the baby, and so they end up in a stable. And this one who will be king is born and placed in the manger. This is not your normal king, and this is intentional. Luke is telling us this is who Jesus is. This tells us about the character of Jesus. Now again, verse 32, again, he will be great. Right? That's the first thing. He will be great in that very first term. It's ordinary, but it's also a throwback. That word, that description takes us back to 2 Samuel, to the covenant that God made with David. The time when God promised David that his, uh, his throne would never end. Right, that he would never lack a son to sit on that throne. And you know what that says? To everyone who's reading this in the first century, to everyone who's a part of this, to the people that Luke is writing for, here is all these people, and this is exactly what they have been waiting for. He is now, right, he's plugging into all these expectations that he just knows all the, the Jews of that day have been waiting And saying, when is God going to show himself faithful? When is he going to bring about the fulfillment? There's all these promises. We are Israel. We are supposed to be his his people, his chosen people. And yet, why is it that we suffer so much? Why is it that that we don't have the greatest king who sits on the throne? Why are we always subservient to the other nations around us? Why does it seem as though the godly are being persecuted and the godless are, are triumphing? There's all these longings that they have, and this one word is keying into that and saying, this is it. This is God's action to bring about the fulfillment of those promises. This is the thing that we have been waiting for. Now, I know a lot of our kids in here have been studying or have studied the shorter catechism, and they've studied the question, how does Jesus... uh, or how does Christ execute the office of a king? Right, this is describing how Jesus is going to come and he's going to be a king. Well, we've studied this. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Many of you know the answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And that's a pretty good description of how Jesus is coming to rule as king. And I think that's a good king. Right? It says first he, he's a king who subdues us to himself. That's important. The first thing that Jesus does as king is he looks at us and in our sin he recognizes as, as sinners we're his enemies. But the first thing he does is, is he conquers us and he subdues us. Right? He brings us into his kingdom. And he transfers us out of the kingdom of darkness. And he brings us graciously into the kingdom of Jesus. And then it says he rules and defends us. So he's defending us from other enemies. He's ruling over us. He's a good king who rules his people. Through his word and spirit, he's ruling over his people. And he restrains and conquers all our enemies. That's a good king. And this angel, Gabriel, says his kingdom has no end. He will reign forever and ever more. That is pretty glorious news. And that gives me hope. Does that give you hope? I'm glad that Jesus is going to reign forever and ever because 
as it is, you know we live in a world right now where justice is not always done. Where mercy is not always offered. Where righteousness is not always rewarded. Right? We live in a world of sin and misery. We live in a world where, where we see the godly people suffer loss and sadness and misery and, and godless people seem to thrive and have no trials at all. And we cry out so often. We just cry out, Lord, how long? How long does all this suffering go on? How long until you do something about it? How long until you act? The Bible says uh, we hope for what we do not see. Right? It doesn't make sense to hope for what you do see. We hope for what we do not yet see. And that's, this is our hope, that we don't see it yet where Jesus is ruling. We don't see it in action because we see all these things that are contrary to Jesus' reign. And yet we hope towards that day when he comes to set up shop and reign forevermore. And the Bible says righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. In that day, we will rejoice and we will be glad. And see, what Luke is doing is from the very beginning, he's setting up that expectation. He's saying that's Jesus' end game, right? That he is coming as king and his throne will have no end. And we are going to kind of ride the ups and downs through the Gospel of Luke with him where there's a few small flashes of glory, but there's also a lot of humility. And it doesn't look like what we expect, but we know from the very beginning that Jesus comes as king. He will reign on the throne of his father David. Righteousness and justice will be the foundation of his throne. And he shall reign forever and ever. That is the glory of the coming of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus. But we also see the ordinariness of it. How does he bring that kingdom? How does he come to reign as king? And we already said that the kingdom doesn't come through a huge, dramatic, glorious announcement with Jesus riding in on the white horse to take over. The how is completely different. Luke gives us this picture. He says it starts this way. With a young girl engaged to be married in Nazareth. That's in Galilee. No one knows, but that's in Galilee. He says the kingdom actually comes through a a savior who's born in a barn who calls himself a man of sorrows. The kingdom comes through a man who says that that foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He's acquainted with suffering. He was well known for eating with sinners, tax collectors, taking pity on the poor, and saying that the real joy of his kingdom is found when one sinner repents. That's the way the kingdom comes. We get this little glimpse of the glory of a king whose throne will know no end But then Luke explains it comes through a very ordinary ministry. It comes through the humility of Jesus walking with sinners and tax collectors, eating in their houses, teaching them about the kingdom of God, healing all of their diseases. That's the way the kingdom comes. And Mark says in his gospel that Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. That's in Mark's gospel, but Luke paints such a clear picture of that of the humility of Jesus. Actually, Matthew describes it in chapter 9. He describes the ordinary ministry of Jesus. It says, He was going throughout the cities and the villages, teaching and preaching about the kingdom and doing good, healing people's diseases and every kind of affliction. 
See, that was the ministry of Jesus. That was the way his kingdom came. He was going about cities and villages, big and small. He didn't go where the crowds were. In fact, he usually did the opposite. His usual method was to avoid the crowds. He went where the needs were. And he taught and he preached the good news of the kingdom, that is, repent and believe. And he ministered to people's pain. It was gospel proclamation, teaching and preaching, and it was gospel practice, ministering to the needs of the people, taking care of them. I once had a a friend who made a very interesting observation. He said there's kind of two types of Christians, if you can put them in two, two sort of big buckets, he said there's some Christians that always seem to focus on the glory of Christ, the triumph of Christ, the the majestic ministry of Christ in heaven. And he said, those are the people who always tend to be hopeful and optimistic and they seem to be just less bothered by the trials of life. And he said, there's other Christians who tend to focus more on the humility of Jesus in his earthly ministry and, and they tend to be more compassionate, uh, more humble, perhaps less triumphalistic. He said the point was not that we need one or need the other. He said we need both. We need both. Because it's the glory of our King that gives us hope. That keeps us from despairing. Because our King, His reign will never end. There's no weapon fashioned against Him that has any hope. And so we do. We have hope. We do not despair. We trust that. But we also need the humility of Jesus. And we need to walk as He walked. We need to love and serve as He loved and served. That's the nature of the Christian life is, is that this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And, that this, and so here's the third point, the, the announcement, there's glory and there's humility, and then the entire life and ministry of Jesus has glory, yes, but lots of humility. And that's the pattern of the Christian life as well. That to be a Christian and to follow Jesus, there is glory in that. And there is a lot of humility in that. It's so important to understand that, that the Christian life, it's not, it's not immediate release from suffering when Jesus just swoops in to save the day and, and make all things better right away. The Christian life is ordinary life, but walking by faith, trusting in our Savior. So here's, here's what I mean. That, that Yes, there is something that's ultimately very glorious about being a Christian and living the Christian life. It's glorious that we follow a king who is infinite and eternal. We follow the one who created the world by the word of his power. We follow this king who is crucified and yet raised on the third day because it's impossible for death to hold him. And uh, he will never die again. He's king of kings, lord of lords. Uh, More than that, the, the scriptures tell us that by faith we are united to Christ. We are united by faith to Christ so that what is true of him becomes true of us. So that we are now sons and daughters of God. We are counted as being righteous in the sight of God. Uh, Colossians tells us we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. We reign with Christ. By faith we are priests before God. Even in this life there are, are blessings of being a Christian. Peace of conscience, assurance of God's unfailing love, joy in Christ, grace to cover all our sins. We are Christians who have a glorious future hope. 
And there's so much glory and there's so much joy in knowing that. That's the Christian life. It's glorious. But it's also very ordinary, isn't it? There are many days we don't, we don't feel that glory, we don't experience that, we don't sense that in a real uh, uh, strong way, right? It feels distant to us because the Christian life is also very ordinary. It's very humble. We live in this world that's infected by sin and misery. Right? As Christians, we often feel more like we're walking in an unknown town of Nazareth, right? not the, the major political centers of the temple in Zion. Right? And as Christians, what is our calling? Our calling is very ordinary like Christ's where to live at peace with those who are around us, to forgive those who sin against us, to love those who are the least of these. We're called to be a people who rejoice even in sufferings, uh, knowing that our God is, is using those, he sanctifies those, he's shaping us through those sufferings. Being a Christian, as we all know all too well by, by painful experience, doesn't mean that, that we are removed out of this world. It doesn't mean that we soar over the trials and tribulations of this life. Quite the opposite, in fact. Being a Christian means we pursue meekness in the face of suffering. We develop patience. We submit to one another in love. Patient in tribulation. Generous. Giving to others rather than keeping for ourselves. I was reminded this week about what it looks like to live the very ordinary Christian life, even as a pastor. But this is the life we're called to. This was a, a quote from one of my old seminary professors, and I found someone had put it on Facebook this week. This is what he said. He said, I regularly tell our seminary students that if I happen to visit the church in which one of them serves, I will not ask first, is this man a good preacher? Rather, first of all, I'll I will ask the secretaries, office staff, janitors, and cleaners, what is it like to work for this pastor? I'll ask, what kind of man is he? Is he a servant? Or is he demanding and harsh? Is he patient and kind, forbearing as a man in authority? One of our graduates may preach great sermons, but if he's a pain to work for, then you know he will cause major problems in any congregation. Leaders in the church are required by Scripture to set an example in the areas of love, kindness, gentleness, patience, and forbearance before they're appointed to preach, teach, and rule. In other words, it's so easy to pursue the glory, right? to be tempted to, to be attracted by that, even as a, as a pastor, but even just as a, a person, right? as a human. It's easy to desire the positions of highest visibility, to desire to receive the praise of men, to hold the positions of influence, to be seen as a man of power and authority and competency. That's what we want. We strive after the glory. And we're reminded that Jesus was born in a stable. We're reminded that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for others. We're reminded that Jesus who is the King of Kings, who is Son of the Most High, who had all those glorious titles given to him before his birth. It was all true about him. And yet, he chose to receive ministry from, from questionable people. And he loved them. And he ate with them. 
And he told the stories of, of the, the Pharisee who in all his, was pompous and proud and was not accepted by God, but he said he was the tax collector who knew his sin and was so troubled by it that he couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He said, that, that's the person that God accepts. It's not the great and the glorious that God loves, it's, it's the humble, it's the meek, it's those who know their own sin and those who are able to humble themselves and confess it. He said, those are the people that God accepts. He said, that's the Christian life. It's not about pursuing the, the glory and the power. It's about walking in the humility of Christ. All those things are true of you. Yes, you too are seated with Christ in heavenly places. And yet in this world you will have trouble. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. From the outside, it looks as though being a Christian is the most ordinary life possible. Just like from the outside, it looked as though Jesus' birth was the most ordinary birth possible. Even though the spiritual reality of that birth was so much filled with glory, the King of Kings making his entrance onto the stage of this world. And so we're strengthened by that. We take hope in that. Because we know that's true of us as well. Yes, the Christian life looks so ordinary, and yet we know there is a glory sort of behind the scenes, as it were. We know that Jesus will come. We know what kind of king he will be and is already. And I think we get a, a hint of the response, even in Mary's response, the last verses we read in this passage. In the face of all this, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Friends, the, the proper response to the Christian life, to, to Jesus, is the, the response of humility and faith. The response that says, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. In other words, to receive what God has given to us. Yes, we're the servants of the Lord. Whatever he gives to us, we take. Whether it's the, the humility of the ordinary life in this earth, as we wait for that day, that great day of glory when Jesus returns. Until then, let it be to us according to his word. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're thankful for Christ. Lord, he is the uh, savior of all those who trust in him. He's also the, the example for us. And Lord, we want to be good disciples. We want to be good followers. We want to be uh, those who know what it's like to walk with Jesus. So Lord... It's good for us to be servants of you. Let it be to us according to your word. May we see our Savior. May we humble ourselves. May we walk with him and may we walk like him. We pray in his name. Amen.